and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the sanctuary for independent media in Troy, New York, or on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Kellen McPherson. And you're coming to us from Arizona, and I'm yes, Sina Fazila Hickey from Troy. Hi, Kaylin. Hi, Sina. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's story on ranked choice voting and why election reformists support it. Then we get a sneak preview of this Thursday's event at the Sanctuary with an interview with journalist and author of American Caliph Shahan Mufti by Steve Pierce. Later on, Marsha Lazarus talks to artist Rabbi Linda Motzkin about her passions for her work. After that, we visit the new restaurant by the Sanctuary, Mediterranean Grill Cuisine. Finally, Tom Francis introduces us to the local poet, Nancy Klepsch. But first, here are the headlines. Times Union reports the State De uh, Department of Health Maternal M Morality Board is focusing on mental health as part of its efforts to reduce the number of pregnancy-related deaths in New York. Mental health issues are the third leading cause of pregnancy-related deaths in the state. One in five maternal deaths are attributed to a mental health condition. The Gazette reports that Schenectady and Saratoga counties last spring implemented a $2 gas tax cap in response to surging gas prices, adding savings of four to eight cents at the pump. Unless lawmakers choose to extend the measure, it's expected to set in uh, Schenectady County on February 28th and Saratoga County on December 31st. Average gasoline prices in Albany area have fallen 9.7 cents per gallon in the last week, averaging $3.82 per gallon. Thousands of local children in need will receive a helping hand this holiday season thanks to Things of My Very Own Wish Tag Program, this connectedly non-for-profit organization in collecting donations, which allow families in need to fill out a holiday wish list that are fulfilled by members of the community. The U.S. Supreme Court seemed ready Monday to side with a one-time top aide to ex-New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and others convicted of corruption related to an upstate economic development project dubbed the Buffalo Billion. The cases are the latest in which the high court would narrow the use of federal fraud charges against state and local officials, as well as people doing business with governments, even if those interactions appear to be unsavory. And that's it for the headlines. For those just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers, and to learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call 518-272-2390. Now moving right along to our first segment, New York City has adopted ranked choice voting for some primaries, but people are advocating for this state's wide Howie, uh, Howie Hawkins talks with Mark Dunley to discuss uh, what this voting system is and why election reformists want to adopt it. We're joined by Howie Hawkins to uh, talk about the issue of ranked choice voting, uh, some 
People also know it as instant runoff uh, voting. Uh, we have adopted this in New York City, but just for um, primaries. Um, but people would like to see it statewide. Uh, Howie recently, the Green Party candidate for, for governor. So, so Howie, can you maybe just quickly explain for people what is ranked choice voting? Well, as a voter, you go into the booth, and instead of just picking your favorite, you get to rank the candidates in order of your preference. So if you're a progressive who likes the Greens but is afraid of the Republicans and then votes Democrat as a lesser evil, you wouldn't have to do that under ranked choice voting. You could rank the Green first, the Democrat second, and not worry about helping your worst enemy, the Republican, in that case. So that's the basic idea. Um, the way it works is if nobody, none of the candidates wins a majority in the first round, the last place candidate is eliminated, and the second choices on their ballots are transferred to their second choices. And then you count again. And as soon as somebody gets over 50%, a majority, they're declared the winner. And you can also do this in multi-member districts and get proportional representation. So for example, we had, instead of 150 single member districts for the state assembly, we could have 15, 10 member districts. So the winning threshold would be about 10%. So you rank your choices as a voter and the votes are transferred uh, from those that got over the winning threshold, their extra votes are transferred and then the last place candidate is eliminated and their votes transferred. And you keep doing that until the 10 candidates get over the 10% threshold. And that way, each political viewpoint gets its proportional share of representation. And what it also does is eliminate the problem of gerrymandering, not just the spoiler problem that you have with winner-take-all elections from single-member districts, but also the gerrymandering problem. Because it doesn't matter so much how you draw the district lines for, for a multi-member district, because you're going to get proportional representation. So that's the basic idea behind it. Now, in New York City, um, the voters did approve having uh, ranked choice voting for, for primaries, but not for Congress. And, and that became a big concern in the 10th congressional district down there in the uh, Democratic primary because a very wealthy corporate bank you know, supported centrist won the election in a very progressive district with, um, I, I think, slightly over 20% of the vote. There were so many candidates winning. If they had a proportional representation, uh, a more progressive candidate would have uh, won. Why, why didn't New York City go all the way, both for, for Congress, but also why they just limited it, uh, just limited it to primaries and not to general election? Well, I think to do it for Congress, it would have to be done at the state level. In the city, they limited it to primaries uh, because basically the Democrats ran the process of making this charter change. And I think they wanted to solve the problems of, you know, vote splitting. You just gave an example in that congressional race where the progressives split the vote and a centrist who was a minority, you know, you know most of the district wouldn't support, got in. So they did that for the primary. But then in the general election, I think they wanted to keep the door closed to the Green Party because then people could vote for us as their first choice. And I don't think the Democrats want the competition. So I think that's what happened in New York City. Ironically, 
New York City used to have proportional ranked choice voting from 1937 to 1945 for the city council. And that's when the first African-American was elected, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. or the third, whichever one it was, um, and the first woman elected to the city council because another thing proportional ranked choice voting does is it gives people who have been excluded, groups that have been excluded, ethnic minorities, women, uh, proportional representation if people want to vote for them. So uh, there's, you know, New York City hasn't even got back to where it was, you know, what, 80 years ago. Now, there are a few states which have approved um, ranked choice voting, you know, for congressional elections. Um, Maine has had it for a couple of years, even though the both parties tried to overthrow what the voters had put on on the ballot. But eventually the court said, no, you really do have to eventually listen to the voters. And Alaska this year was using uh, ranked choice voting for um, both the House and the Senate. Where do we stand in, in New York State in terms of actually getting the state legislature um, to agree to adopt ranked choice voting statewide? We actually now have three states. Nevada just approved it in this election. And ranked choice voting, going into 2020, there were only 24 jurisdictions in the country that used it. Coming out of this election, there are over 100. So this is a reform that's advancing quickly across the country. New York is behind, and you know our, a lot of our politicians say, you know, they're on the progressive cutting edge. Well, here's an opportunity. I think the first step in New York would be to have all statewide elections for the statewide offices, for the you know the executive offices for the state governor, comptroller, attorney general, but also the U.S. senators in the presidential race. We could, you know, just a simple law passed by the legislature could do that. I think that's the first step. In New York. Well, don't you have the problem with statewide races, however, in that the Democrats wrote the law, so it's almost impossible for any independent third party to get on the ballot. So it seems like ranked choice voting is less important with the statewide races because they've largely turned it into two party races. Well, that's what I was just about to say is you've got to have more than two candidates on the ballot in order to make ranked choice voting relevant, which means we got to have a reasonable ballot access law uh, like we had before 2020. It wasn't easy in New York state, but you know we did have you know, five, six, seven, eight candidates for statewide offices. This year, it was only two. So that would have to accompany uh, a legislation for ranked choice voting. Now, is there legislation that has even moved out of any you know, committee uh, in um, you know, the state legislature or the chairs of the election law committees, uh, have they been introducing bills? Are some of the you know so-called reform groups like Common Cause, Lewin Voters, NYPIRG, have they been promoting ranked choice voting? Uh, there's no law been introduced by any of the legislatures. We've been legislators. We've been talking to them, and I believe we can get a law introduced, a, a bill introduced for ranked choice voting, like I described for all the statewide offices this coming session um, of the good government groups you mentioned, the League of Women Voters has been having a lot of discussion and endorsements of ranked choice voting in New York State. So that group uh, is, you know, leading the charge in, in that direction among the good government groups. 
So um, how did these other states or municipalities, you say, well, was it close to 100 now have it? How did that come about? Uh, well, in a lot of cases, people want to get rid of the spoiler problem. And uh, it varies from state to state. There's uh, there's well-funded groups, you know, with Silicon Valley money and other, you know, wealthy money that wants to use ranked choice voting so that extremists don't get the edge or minority supported candidates don't get the edge. Like in that congressional election, you talked about that primary or take the Republican presidential primary in 2016. I mean, Trump rarely got over 30% or 35% in the primaries, but those were winner take all primaries. So all the anti-Trump Republicans split the vote amongst themselves. And so Trump ended up winning the nomination, even though he never had majority support among the voters in the primaries. So that is a concern that has also motivated movements in these states. And another concern, and this is in uh, municipal level so far, is that ethnic minorities are excluded by winner-take-all elections, whether the elections are at-large in a city or district elections. So in the case of Albany, California, it was Asians that weren't getting represented. In uh, Desert Palm, California, it was Latinos. In, so, uh, so how we, we only have 20 seconds left. If people want more information, how do they do that? Fairvote.org is the best source to find out more about ranked choice voting and proportional representation. They have a lot of material on that website. Fairvote.org. Thank you very much. We've been talking with Howie Hawkins, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. When I lived in Brooklyn, I was able to do some ranked choice voting, which was really great. So that website again is fairvote.org. Journalist Shahan Mafti talks about his new book, American Caliph, about the 1977 Hanaf Muslim siege of Washington, D.C. with Hudson Mohawk Magazine correspondent Steve Pierce. My name is Steve Pierce, correspondent for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm joined by Shahan Mufti, longtime journalist, head of the journalism department at the University of Richmond, and author of the new book, American Caliph, about the 1977 Hanafi Muslim siege of Washington, D.C. Shahan, welcome. Can you give us a brief overview of what happened back then and why? Well, at the center of my book are uh, two full days uh, from March 9th, actually into early into the morning of March 11th of 1977. Um, these were uh, these were three crazy days in the history of America that have been amazingly uh, forgotten uh, by many, by most. Um, it, this was a, a hostage taking that uh, took place in Washington D.C. on the morning of March 9th. Um, uh, Twelve members of uh, of a, the Hanafi group, a group of mostly African American Muslims, uh, headquartered in Washington D.C., just a few miles up the road from the White House, took over three different locations in Washington D.C. Uh, and they uh, and took close to 150 hostages in the city that morning. Um, seven of them went to the B'nai B'rith headquarters, which is the, the largest Jewish services organization in the country, actually, and the oldest. Uh, a few others went to the Islamic Center uh, on Massachusetts Avenue in Washington, D.C., which is the, the at that time was definitely the largest, most important mosque, Islamic mosque in the country, took uh, about a dozen hostages there. And then two other Hanafis 
they landed in the district building, uh, which is just a couple hundred yards from the White House, actually visible from the White House. And uh, those three men took uh, uh, about another dozen hostages in the district building. That location was the most violent, where uh, shots were fired. There was a firefight between security, police, and and the Hanafi hostage takers. And uh, that's where the first casualties that uh, morning happened. Um, speaking of the White House, this was uh, early days for the Carter administration. So Jimmy Carter had been in office no, not even two months at this point. And uh, he uh, he was quickly <laughs> considering all that was happening in that city and how close it was to the White House. The, the federal government and the White House were quickly involved in that. And Carter was actually busy that day hosting uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, and they were having some heated exchanges about um, the 1967 borders that Israel would have to return to, and some Middle Eastern politics was in Washington that morning in more than one way. I should, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, tell you that, uh, and our listeners, that uh, I have a personal stake in the story. I was 18 years old at the time. My father was an intern in the district building in D.C., and he was caught up in all of this and um, actually uh, severely wounded. He'd lived a uh, life uh, after the incident uh, in a wheelchair, uh, triplegic because of a gunshot wound that was uh, uh, suffered as part of the uh, shooting that you referred to. Uh, so that's, that's right. how I got interested in the story. I, the story got interested in me. How did you get interested in the story? Uh, in a roundabout way. Um, I uh, really, I think... My interest, as I actually did not know about this story, like so many people that in your audience that are are hearing this for the first time, I had never heard of this until about seven years ago when I found it. I f I found it kind of a roundabout way. I was um, it, uh, the there was the, the attack in Paris, France, on the Charlie Hebdo offices in 2015 um, by a, a couple of um, French Muslim men. And they had attacked the Charlie Hebdo. Uh, it was a, a satirical publication in France. And they'd attacked those offices because the, they, they had published some cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, anyway, I, I, I mean, I was kind of shaken by that event. And um, I, as a journalist, I, you know, I was kind of uh, dry. I, was, I found myself thinking about it a lot, that attack on that newsroom. And uh, there was a lot of the, like almost half that editorial team died and was murdered that day. And it was something that got me thinking about this issue. And I had been long thinking about this larger recurring issue of of violence that happens around this idea of of protecting the Islamic prophet's honor and memory and, and, and image. And, you know, all the way from the satanic verses in the 80s to all the way until, well, Salman Rushdie was just attacked on stage again. And in between, we've had the Danish cartoons, we've had the YouTube video that led to the, that when part was in the middle of the Arab Spring, there was, there's South Park episodes. I mean, there's been so much, this keeps happening. I had long been paying attention to this. And, and that's when I, I, I started looking into it. And I just found this as a, kind of a throwaway paragraph in an, an academic study while I was reading up on the issue about this takeover in downtown Washington uh, by 12 Muslim men and uh, 150. And I just couldn't, I could not believe what I was reading. 
because uh, I didn't know, well, I just didn't know, I couldn't believe that I didn't know anything about it. I had never heard anything about it. And I was even more amazed when I found that nobody had actually written about it. And there was no real record of what had occurred, in, in at least in book form or in any kind of long form. So that as, as a reporter, as a journalist, as a person, author, as a person who writes books, that was, that was it that I knew in that moment that this is something I had to had to write about. And, and I had no idea really the the what I was getting into and the layers I would have to peel back. But but I got started on that pretty immediately. And it, that was seven years ago almost now. I've always wondered why it hadn't been turned into a movie, a Hollywood movie, because it has all the elements. You have, you know, violence, you have all the action movie things. The only thing uh, I think you really don't have a lot of his sex, and you even have Elizabeth Taylor and tangentially. <laughs> so I guess you could. and and a and a crazy cast of characters. That's the thing is that I mean it's just amazing. Uh, in the beginning, like when I started writing the book, I did not know. I could not imagine. Uh, the cast of characters I would encounter. Um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the NBA star, central to this story. Uh, Liz, Elizabeth Taylor is is in the in the mix. Malcolm X is an important character, especially in the first half of the story. Um, we have, uh, you know, uh, Amiri Baraka makes an appearance. Marion Barry is shot in Washington D.C., who went on to become um, the mayor of Washington forever. Uh, Muammar Gaddafi, I would say, is a central, pivotal character, the Libyan dictator. Um, Anthony Quinn is in there. I mean, I could keep going, and it sounds crazy when you list them in this order. How could all these people possibly be connected? But they are, and and that's what that is what I think was really. This is a rich story, and it's just uh, all these characters are coming in from different parts of American culture and society and global culture and society. And that's what I think really made this story interesting for me. But beyond the action and the kind of recreating of important events, it was just the, the ramifications of all that and, and the roots of all that was happening as well as this. This, uh, this was, uh, um, yeah, it, it just had... a it was a really textured layered story to work on and part of, that's why it took a long time but i think that's also why it was a very satisfying story to write have you had any inquiries about film rights for the book <laughs> i think so i'm trying to keep my head clear of that stuff my agent is <laughs> dealing with that but yes there is obviously i mean i think now that the story's been written and 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 Steve, like we were talking about, I mean, the, people did not really this since this had never been written about. People didn't really, I think, appreciate uh, the richness of the story. But I think now that it's in book form, I think uh, people in the visual medium are are definitely, I assume, going to be interested. I think it would make a great movie or a series or a limited series or something. Yeah. Well, most of the work's been done now, so, uh, you know. Yeah, it's just got to get cameras now. <laughs> the first time I heard about the book is when you received a grant uh, to do the uh, research on it. Uh, wow. And I thought, fantastic, you know, finally somebody's researching uh, the uh, roots and branches of the story, which are just kind of overwhelming, the amount of information uh, that's in there if you dig deeply enough. Uh, I was worried when I saw the first uh, the, the first signs of the book's publication because it's called American Caliph, the true story of a Muslim mystic, a Hollywood epic, and the 1977 siege of Washington D.C. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's true, 
Uh, but it feels a little sensationalistic. And I thought, oh, no, not another one of these. <laughs> and uh, then I started reading and I was just really, uh, it was breathtaking the amount of detail that you have in here, tracing the story around the world. And it struck me that today's standards of journalism, uh, and probably even back in those days, because if you look at the archival video, which there's quite a bit, you see that there's a huge amount of information about what happened, but nothing about why. Yeah. And after almost 50 years, there's still almost nothing about why until your book came out. Well, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Shahan Mufti, uh, journalist, head of the journalism department at the University of Richmond and author of the new book, American Caliph, about the 1977 Hanafi Muslim siege of Washington, D.C. Thanks so much and look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Steve. It was a pleasure. And that soon will be on Thursday. Shahan Mufti will be at the Sanctuary for Independent Media on Thursday, December 1st at 7 p.m. for the book talk on American Caliph about the 1977 Hanafi Muslim siege. And for, uh, for registering your tickets, the website is mediasanctuary.org. For those just tuning in, I'm Kaelin McPherson. And I'm Sina Bazilahiki. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany. Also streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Rabbi Linda Motzkin of Temple Sinai in Saratoga Springs is passionate about her work. Yes, about being a rabbi and a Torah scribe and a parchment maker and an artist. And when she started two of these fields, being a woman was far from common. She spoke with Marsha Lazarus. You know, I happen to be the daughter of a woman who went to medical school and became a physician in the 1950s. And so my mother was a very powerful role model for me that a woman can have a career and have a family. And I think in some ways, going to medical school in the 1980s felt a little bit like I was walking in my mother's footsteps, entering a tradition, you know, entering a profession that women traditionally hadn't entered, but with the confidence that a woman can do anything she sets her mind to do. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. This is Marsha Lazarus, and I'm sitting with Rabbi Linda Motzkin. Rabbi Linda and her husband, Rabbi Jonathan Rubenstein, have served as co-rabbis at Temple Sinai in downtown Saratoga Springs since 1986. Wow, over 35 years. Yes, 36 and a half. Congratulations. Thank you. What an accomplishment. It's been, it's been a wonderful, wonderful 36 and a half years. So was becoming a rabbi a dream that you had as a young person? When I was young, it was, I would have no sooner thought of becoming a rabbi than I would have thought of sprouting wings and flying to the moon. When I was young, there was no such thing as a woman rabbi. And there were only men leading communities. So 
it never entered my mind as a, as a young girl, as a possible career option for me. Um, it wasn't until I was in college. Uh, I studied as an undergrad at UC Berkeley in California. I did my junior year abroad at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. And it was there when I was a college student that I first met young women only a few years older than myself that were studying to be rabbis. And that was when the whole idea of becoming a rabbi even first entered my head as a possible profession to pursue. It just until that point was completely not on my radar, but I was there studying for a year in Jerusalem because I was interested in exploring my Jewish identity, my Jewish heritage. I wasn't particularly religious at that point, but um, meeting young women who were studying to be rabbis made me think, huh, that's, a, that's an interesting choice of a career and something perhaps might suit me. Rabbi Linda, I understand that in addition to being a rabbi, you are also a Torah scribe, an author, a parchment maker, and an artist. I've been an artist um, as a sidelong passion, never as a career option for my entire life. I've always had an artistic bent. Uh, I became an author of uh, Hebrew language textbooks before I became a rabbi. I worked for a Hebrew uh, curriculum materials publishing company and in that context authored the first Hebrew language textbook that I wrote and then on the basis of that wrote others after becoming a rabbi. But so the artist and, and author preceded becoming a rabbi. Um, but the becoming a Torah scribe and Parchment maker definitely were uh, roles that I took on in the context of being rabbi at Temple Sinai in Saratoga Springs. I um, happened to make the acquaintance of a scribe who um, introduced me to his teacher, who became my teacher. The temple, um, it was sort of an outgrowth of my own artistic inclinations to get into studying traditional Jewish scribal arts. Uh, but doing it had the support um, and encouragement of members of my congregation. It also felt again like venturing into a realm that wasn't traditionally a female realm. Um, up until the 21st century, there were no Torah scrolls known to history to have been written by a woman. Doesn't mean there necessarily weren't any, but none that were acknowledged and known in history to have been written by women. And laws that had developed within Jewish tradition to prohibit women from being among those who could write Torah scrolls. So it was a very, if becoming a rabbi as a woman was a new thing, becoming a Torah scribe as a woman was even more so a new thing. And um, I became a parchment maker in part because I needed to have a means of acquiring materials for doing this work since all the scribal supply shops that produced these materials and sold these materials uh, were not at the time when I was beginning to study um, 
oriented toward women scribes or selling to women scribes. So I had to come up with my own way of accessing my materials. And that's how I got into parchment making. And when you talk about scribe, are you talking about a form of calligraphy? Writing a Torah scroll is slightly, is different. It's actually, in my mind, be the scribe and being a Hebrew calligraphic artist are two separate things. Being a Torah scribe is being part of a centuries old tradition that has its own laws. And, you know, not everybody, even if they're a beautiful calligrapher, can pick up a quill and write a Torah scroll. There's all sorts of um, rules about the way in which it has to be written and the materials one uses and the process uh, as it unfolds. And it's something that one has to learn. I had the good fortune of meeting a traditional Orthodox rabbi who was a traditionally trained scribe in 2003 who agreed to take me on as his student or else I wouldn't be able to be writing a Torah scroll. I would be able to do Hebrew calligraphy. I'd be able to do Hebrew art, but I wouldn't be able to write a Torah scroll without having the special training and learning that goes with that. That is because the Torah is a holy set of books. Is, is that where the rules and the prescriptions come in? It's not just any old book that somebody picks up. Yes, a Torah scroll is the most sacred ritual object in the Jewish religion. And it and Torah scrolls today are written the same way they were in antiquity. They're handwritten by a scribe um, using uh, on parchment, which is not paper. It's made from animal skins. For a Torah, it has to be the skin of a kosher animal. And um, they're not mass produced. They're not made on printing presses. Um, in antiquity, a scribe would have written with a reed like papyrus or bamboo. Now scribes write with feathers. But, but other than that, we're pretty much doing the same thing that was done 2000 years ago. In what ways does the role of rabbi resonate most within you, with who you are? I mean, I, I think I would say that the role of rabbi has uh, enabled me to be the best version of myself and has represented the best aspects of who I am. Because as rabbi, that's what I'm called upon to be. And so I'm grateful to my Temple Sinai community for 36 years of um, enabling me to be their rabbi and together with my husband um, serve in this role that um, in which I could be the best version of myself. I also understand Rabbi Linda that your artwork will be shown in a solo exhibit called Between Heaven and Earth at the Spring Street Gallery in Saratoga Springs and will run through December 19th. The number to call if you want to schedule an appointment, 518-290-0660. Actually, they ask that you text Belinda Colon. An earlier interview with Rabbi Linda Motzen about her current exhibition, Between Earth and Heaven, 
on view at Spring Street Gallery in Saratoga can be heard on our website. So, the plaza next to the Sanctuary for Independent Media, Kaylin, you know and I know, we've been there on River Street, has been transformed, and its new occupants serve Mediterranean cuisine. So what's unique about this family-run restaurant with Turkish-Kurdish roots? Well, I went to the Mediterranean Grill Cuisine to find out. You're making me hungry. So right next to the sanctuary, there's a new restaurant that popped up, and I'm here with the owner. Yeah, my name is Farad, Restaurants Grill Mediterranean Cuisine. I'm located in 908 River Street. Uh, I changed the roof and seal and inside. I changed everything, like a paint floor, all the equipment. It was good now, fresh, brand new. Which is, I use the colors. Uh, if you ask why is the blue and white, most colors is uh, blue tones, is, which is, I like Mediterranean. What's your background? My background is I worked five years restaurant in Istanbul, International Street, Main Street, Istiklal Street, which is exactly like Times Square. In Istanbul, we call Istiklal Street. Also, I have a seven years cruise line experience. I've been all around the world. I've been east and west, up and down, all around the world. Exactly, I can say Asian side, Europe side, Latin American countries, Caribbeans, Jamaica style, you know, all places I've been. So I get a little bit, a little bit everything from for my restaurant. And I can say my experience, which is enough for open the restaurant exactly because I'm coming from the restaurant business as a chef, as a restaurant manager, and server, cook. I did like many things. I use most stuff, homemade stuff, like homemade eggplant, homemade hummus, homemade falafel, homemade grape leaves, which is, I know you guys love it. Yeah, I noticed, one of the first things I noticed was that you homemade your falafel, and I think one of my first questions, if it wasn't frozen, which is quite unusual. That's a lot more time and uh, effort to make these homemade things. So how do you make ev- how do you find the time to make everything from scratch? Exactly, you know, if you don't have a team, you, you mean I mean you can work and you can walk and you can be successful. The, everything is about the team. I have like eight people work with me, which is small restaurant and big employer, huge employer area, like. I have a homemade, someone making bread, someone making dessert, someone making falafel vegetables, like appetizers, and other chef is making own Iskander kebabs, homemade sauce, lamb meat, all fresh, all fresh, fresh. This is, I wanna tell, three times is fresh meat. I don't use frozen meat here. And I do, I bring the farm, all the meat, all the way in New Jersey is also, Halal meat, the people just need, they need to know also is halal meat. I know maybe $1, $2 is high price us instead of other restaurant, but I like to use fresh meat and fresh veggies and homemade stuff. That's I would keep that way, organic stuff here. What have been the top sellers on your menu? Number one, which is Iskender Kebab, Anatolian Iskender Kebab, which is uh, west of Turkey, like Ottoman Empire, Business Empire, uh, Constantinopolis, which is Greek uh, city was before, you know. 
So this century, 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 it's all about history. It's, it's like lamb, tenderloin, very soft. It's pita bread on the bottom and house-made sauce and fresh golden butter. Butter, we, we oil it. Butter, we cook, you know. It comes steam, not hot. Then we put top of the dishes. It's, the sounds is going to be, you know. So that's way, this is the most important dishes here. And second one is Adana kebab. This I come from Adana. I born Adana all my life. My whole family from Adana. The restaurant is also family business. It's only one family. And that's why Adana is popular for me and for the Turkey. The people, Turkish people, they know it's number one dishes in the Turkey, Adana kebab. If you ask me what is Adana kebab, like I can tell you it's a big story. Family style. We cook Sunday usually, and weekend. Now it get very popular. You you can use any day, any time. It's very soft tenderloin, lamb, ground lamb, from the rib. We move the rib bones. We just take the from the the bones, all the meat, all the way, and we put side, and we we chop chop with the big knife, handmade, and we work hard for it. Then you put seasonal black pepper, salt, a little bit fat. Uh, also for rib fat, you don't use any um, other meat fat. You should it should be lamb fat or beef beef fat, a little bit. We use the, like 200 grams, so we use for adana kebab, meat, real meat. And the smell you when you serve on the table, it's come with the three different salad, choban salad and onion salad on the side. It's come with the pita bread, grilled veggies. Normally we don't serve rice in Turkey, but I see people like rice here, so I put on the side rice complimentary, so people try the rice too, homemade. And you just highlighted two of the meat options, but I'm vegetarian. Could you talk about some things that you offer vegetarian? The vegetarian is what I call the Anatolian appetizers, homemade, which is homemade eggplant grill. It's come with the chop chop again, with the grilled eggplant, we put the fresh tomato sauce, oil, parsley, it's come juicy, and you put on the side pita bread, it's homemade too. And also grape leaves, the people make only in the Turkey grape leaves, just the ladies, it's ladies job. You roll it, you put rice in the grape leaves, you cook the grape leaves first with the hot water, and you put rice stuff, stuffing, and you roll it, and you cook in 40 minutes. It's come with a little bit of lemon, topping and you serve and what's the history why it's a woman's job to do the grape leaves this is like a this I say like Turkish cuisine is very big cuisine very important cuisine is all around part of like East Turkey West Turkey North Turkey each they have own cuisine so the the very traditional because you don't make all the time it's very few days like in a one month, once time, because you don't find the grapes, leaves, which is summertime, you have to find, and you dry it, and you cook, and you keep frozen somewhere, you know, and then here, I make little, little, but fresh. That's people, very authentic food, it's authentic, very authentic food, grape leaves especially. So what brought your family to North Troy? I was in North Carolina five years all my life, so I like to help people, not only my family members, you know. 
any kind of people if they need, any nationality if they need, any religion people if they need. My style, I like to help people. And then I see this couple of situation in Turkey, the family members, they don't have job, they don't work. And they all the way, they come all the way in Turkey to here. And very, very hard to find a job, first of all. You know, they don't speak English, most of them. They need to go to school, like English class, you know. They need to take their class, you know. So very, very hard to find a job, first of all. And then I, I think myself, I need to find some solution. Then I open the restaurant, which is they know the business, which is they can speak in their language and they can work with their people. And if the people authentic food, American people, they like Mediterranean food, more than welcome to visit here. So is food a form of communication? Yes, it is. All about the team, together, like combination. If no f family members, if no team, if no people work here, hard work, you can work. You can make this amazing menu in Troy. So for people who haven't visited before, what, what for you is the most important part about this restaurant here? You know, it's really people, they need hospitality service, first of all. They need respect. That's our culture. First, we respect people. First, we respect guests. When the customer, we don't call customer, when the guests come inside of the restaurant, first of all, we look at them, smile, and we greet them as a human being, as a best hospitality service. This is our culture. We offer meat, just let them test. We offer hot tea, this Turkish culture. They, they, they surprise, they see the hot tea and they, they just carry the hot tea, even they don't know how to, you know. But this is like authentic, how they are, you know. So we teach them how to put the sugar a little bit for hot water and then drink slowly, slowly and talk nice and be calm, you know, be fresh and be, be respectful each other. That's how we start with the business first. Then we explain our dishes. Our target is not make money. Our target is make people happy and make show your culture and hospitality. I can say every time I've got, gone in, I have not been treated but with nothing but respect. If you'd like to visit, go to 901 River Street, Troy, New York. They're open from 11 a.m. to 2 a.m. So if you get the munchies late at night, I guess you can go and get some really good, delicious food. Or order a line. <laughs> or order online. There you go. <laughs> so we go from food to poetry. And for this week's poet highlight, Tom Francis goes back to 2015 to share Nancy Klepsch's poem, A Queer Horse. Nancy Klepsch is a local poet and teacher. Her poems have been published in Oberon, 13th Moon, Poetry Magazine, Salvage, 200 Proof, and Chronogram, among others, and online at Barzak and Albany Poets. God Must Be a Boogeyman is her first book of poetry and is available from her website, nancyklepsch.com. She's been reading at featured readings or open mics in the Albany area for the past 20-plus years. Klepsch is also the co-host with Dan Wilcox of the second Sunday at 2 open mic for poetry and prose in Troy, New York. On April 12, 2015, Nancy read her poem, A Queer Horse, at the Up the River Issue 3 launch reading at McGeary's in Albany, New York. So, Langston Hughes, uh, A Negro Speaks of Rivers, and uh, 
frost, the road less traveled, really permeate and, and are in my DNA. And I always thought, what would it be like if I got to hear what the queer little horse said uh, that the narrator mentioned? So that's where this comes from. And it's called A Queer Horse. I am a queer horse, a brave, hard mount in a hard, brave world. My long, lean legs have carried me to Mecca, Jerusalem, and Mumbai. I have galloped in the waters of the Mediterranean, drank her deep blue ocean, felt her waves upon my lips, and now I'm that queer horse, curly-cued and off-balance. I forget. I forgot, I have forgotten how to run unsaddled through a fresh field. But when I think about that poem, um, I think about the Negro Speaks of Rivers. You know, I spent such a long time teaching Langston Hughes and different poets and um, sometimes if I'm really lucky, some of their better ideas come into my head and I get to make something of my own. And when I mm -hmm. think about this poem, I think about the lines of, you know, um, carried me to Mecca, Jerusalem and Mumbai. I've galloped in the waters, drank, drank her deep blue ocean. For those of us who write in terms of what I call identity politics, there becomes this, at least it was for me, um, maybe that wouldn't be, it would be different for a different uh, minority group. But for me, I got to a point where I couldn't write those identity politics and autobiographical poems anymore because they weren't feeling authentic. And I have to make myself laugh. But one of the things that had happened is I grew up and got happy. And I wasn't as angry anymore. And um, A Queer Horse was an attempt to write a poem about being gay, but to have a different perspective on it. I asked what happens when you're not angry about those things anymore. Nancy says that going to a poetry workshop led by the late Bernadette Mayer, helped. What I did, and it's very relevant because she just died, um, but what I did is I wound up luckily stumbling upon Bernadette Mayer's um, workshops, and it had a profound experience um, for me um, because Bernadette taught me how to do something I didn't know how to do. She taught me how to make a poem where there's a blank landscape that you can see yourself in. Um, it's almost like in a song. You know, all of us have songs that we'll sing or listen to, and they resonate with us, and we feel like that happened to us, and we feel like the author knows our feelings, and they're, they're speaking them. And uh, one of the things that she shared with, with us it wasn't explicit, it was implied, but you have to kind of leave a lot of holes. Um, the other thing that, that she taught us, um, which would a, a lot of the poets in the class would, would push back on her, um, it was kind of funny for me because it was exactly what I did for a living, um, 
but she didn't like meanings. You know, she didn't think that poetry should have meaning. She she felt like poets focused way too much on meaning. She didn't like being labeled, but she certainly was a language poet. So fooling around with language and play, and, and plus she was just brilliant. I mean, she knew everybody. She knew every living poet and those who had, you know, contemporaries who had died. So she could reference meetings with them and talking with them. Poet, publisher, and artist Bernadette Mayer passed away on November 22nd at the age of 77. She was a driving force in the small press world of New York City and ran St. Mark's Poetry Project for many years. I asked Nancy about Bernadette's lasting impact. Her door was always open when you walked in. She was always there and welcome, and there was a generosity to us. Um, when we were in the workshop, it felt like we were important, like we were important poets, and what we did was important. And um, she created a space where everything was okay. Um, she would give us writing. Basically, what she would do is give us writing prompts. And now I'm going through um, my my emails trying to write them down because I never captured them. But one of them, some of them were as simple as mushrooms, Girl Scout cookies, or our first one was uh, write a poem as if there's a tornado in your body. And she would just give us these assignments. And, you know, for me personally, I, I had actually at the time never written a poem about mushrooms. And I came up with this like fun for me, I don't know if she liked it, um, but fun for me um, poem that was an emulation of Howl, um, but goofing on all the hipsters that come to our farmer's market and giving them different mushroom names and descriptions and, and stuff like that. So I had a hoot with it. And uh, again, just that her door was always open and there was a level of generosity in her spirit Nancy goes on to explain how poetry is a tool for social justice and tells a story about Tom Nattel in the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. I, I think poetry is an amazing vehicle for social change. Um, I think it's definitely one of its functions. It doesn't have to be all its functions. For me, the most profound social justice thing was when I came to my beloved dear friend, Tom Nattel, and I told him my best friend was dying of AIDS. And Tom was an early innovator in the AIDS department in the health, uh, in the New York State Health Department. And Tom coached me and, and we created these like bread and bup, a puppet type um, instruments. I had no idea what we were doing, but I was fascinated by it because I was, I was so angry and I was so grieving so much. And um, Tom gave me a mechanism where I could take my art and put it with social justice. And we did this scattered site poetry reading. We, we would hand out dental dams. We would hand out condoms. People would spit at us sometimes. People would yell at us. They were, they were not, you know, you know, this was a time when there was no cure. Um, and, and it was just shortly after the whole grid thing. So they were calling it like the gay related infectious disease and thinking about quarantining gay people. Um, for me personally, to have my best friend get that and then to find out, um, and, and I think ethically, I can't imagine this would have happened today, but 
when the AZT didn't work anymore, the only way that you could get the cocktail was to be in an experimental program. And my friend got the placebo. So my friend began to die in front of me. So we did this thing and it really, it kept me alive and it sustained me because it helped me, it healed me. Um, it helped me to make sense of my world. It certainly helped me to communicate my anger and protest and frustration. Um, and it made me feel bold and brave and courageous. And Tom gave me that gift. Tom taught me all of that. I had no idea that you could take the arts and make social change out of it. And um, he taught me a valuable gift that I've used throughout my life. Nancy Kleps recently won second prize in the Hudson Valley Writers Guild annual writing contest with her poem, My Mother Was Effortlessly Cool, which can be read at hvwg.org. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Tom Francis. Tom Francis brings us weekly poetry features. More poetry interviews are available on our website at mediasanctuary.org. And that's our show. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Kalen McPherson. And I'm Sina Bazilahickey. We want to thank all of our volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Steve Pierce, Marshall Lazarus, Tom Francis, and my co-host, Kayla McPherson, all the way over from Arizona. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation by becoming a sanctuary sustainer, you can go to mediasanctuary.org. We want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary. Or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes individual stories are available on demand on our website on your favorite podcast platform we appreciate you listening from wherever you are listening and radio continues to grow until next time